0: with me to Titus chapter 2 on page 1199 This morning we're going to focus our attention on the first eight verses of chapter 2 but before we do that I want to say a word or two about Paul's teaching in chapter 1 Remember why Paul's written this letter He and Titus were together at some point in Crete they preached the gospel there. People responded and came to faith in Jesus Christ. And now Paul has left Titus to establish new congregations of God's people. But in order to help Titus to do that, he's, he's given him some instructions. He's written him a letter, given him some idea of how he might build up these congregations in Crete. As Titus rips the letter open and he begins to read, it's not long before he's through the address, before he's into the body of the letter, and Paul begins his letter with the most important advice of all, for anyone establishing a congregation of God's people. Verse 5. Appoint elders in every town as I directed you, John Stott highlights the importance of this instruction. He says the way, the main way to regulate and consolidate the life of the church is to secure for it a gifted and conscientious pastoral oversight. Appoint elders. Some of you are very new to this congregation and don't really maybe know very much about it. Let me tell you a little bit about our elders. When I first considered coming to this congregation four years ago, at a time when congregational life was was much less healthy than it is now, uh, when our our numbers were lower and and there was much less to be encouraged about, one thing that stood out to me, uh, and in the end one of the key reasons why I thought I could come here, was the Kirk Session, the elders whom I met here. I was particularly struck by their commitment to see God's word preached here uh, and to to prayerfully support a ministry that that would do that uh, and try to build up a congregation of God's people here. I I was very struck by by that desire at that time. And and I have to say with hindsight, uh, I I was right uh, to to have seen it that way because that support uh, wasn't just an imagined thing. It's something that has continued uh, right through the ministry up until today. There have been a lot of highlights in the four years that I've been here. Actually, I'm just thinking today probably is the fourth year exactly. It was the final Sunday of of September, or or maybe it's next week. But round about now, four years ago, uh, that I was first called to be the minister here at Kirkpatrick Memorial. There have been a lot of highlights in those, those four years but for me one stands out as probably the key, the key moment in that four years and that is uh, an evening in the spring of last year of 2006 when we ordained six uh, godly young men to become elders in our congregation. In, in that year and a half since we ordained uh, those six men I've just been struck time and time again by their their love for God, uh, their willingness to serve him and to do whatever they can to to see this congregation grow in in knowledge and love of Jesus Christ. Folks, when I take that, that long-standing Kirk session, the new elders who were elected, when I take them together as a group, I can tell you we have a wonderful Kirk session. And I commend them to you. Pray for them. Keep praying for them, that God would guide them. You know, it's not easy to to lead a congregation. You know, I, I know that as a minister, but the elders know that too, as Kirk Sessions. We have difficult decisions to make from time to time. We have to make decisions that are unpopular with some, maybe popular with others. We don't do this to impress our will on anyone. We do it simply as best we can to serve God. Would you pray for them? Pray for your elders and keep doing that. As soon as Paul tells Titus to establish elders in verse, in verse 5, he goes on in verses 6 to 9 to give some criteria that Paul should use when he's choosing elders. Now, we looked at these at the time when we were electing elders, so I'm not going to, to preach them just now. We'll look at them again in the future, probably when it comes to ordaining uh, new elders, when the time is right for that. That's all we need to say for the moment about chapter one, but before we come to chapter two, I want to ask you, I want to ask you a question, and in some ways it's kind of an obvious question and, and maybe an unspoken one in Christian circles. We talk about the good news of Jesus Christ, about the gospel being good news. If the gospel really is as good as the Bible says and as good as we make out, then why isn't everyone converted? Why doesn't everyone respond to it? Why are there people in our congregation in Ballyhackamore and throughout Northern Ireland who aren't following Jesus? Why is that? Well, let me invite you to come with me in your minds on a on a fictional pastoral visit that might help you to see at least one reason why some people don't follow jesus picture the scene i'm visiting with a a woman in her 80s she opens the door polite but obviously not at ease with the minister calling Uh, She invites me in, and and we take a seat in, in the good room. Do people still have a good room? Yeah, I think some people do. We had a Christmas room when I was growing up that was really only for Christmas. We take a seat in the good room, and we get talking. She tells me that she was well taught in Sunday school, that she knows the Bible. And that's, that's encouraging. It's lovely to hear that as a, a pastor. And then she tells me that she's heard all about Jesus Christ and all about asking him to forgive her sins. And I think this, this sounds great. This woman knows the gospel. And then I ask her, well, have you done that? Have you trusted Jesus Christ? Have you asked him to forgive your sins and have you made him your Lord? No, she snarls. And I'm not going to, not anytime soon. And I ask her, why not? And she begins her rant. She says, I've been to church. And I know what they're like. I grew up in the church and I don't want anything more to do it. I've seen things in church that you just would not believe. You should see how I've been treated by so-called Christians. Christians and churchgoers, they're all just hypocrites. If that's what being a Christian does to you, I don't want to know. Maybe you have heard someone expressing similar sentiments. A friend or a member of your family. It's not a new problem. And it's precisely the problem that Paul deals with in these opening verses of Titus chapter 2. We'll come back to this idea in a moment, but let's look at some of these verses together. Chapter 2 verse 1, Paul, the older experienced pastor, tells Titus, the younger pastor, Titus, you must teach what's in accord with sound doctrine. This expression that Paul uses here, sound doctrine, he uses it regularly in his letters to to Titus and to Timothy, both of the the young pastors to whom he's a mentor. And it's actually a medical metaphor. It refers to the healthiness of the teaching. And it's contrasted here particularly with with the false teaching that that he mentions in chapter 1. Healthy Christians need healthy teaching. Healthy Christian teaching leads to healthy Christian behavior. So Titus is to teach doctrine that strengthens and brings health to the body of Christ. Not long after I came to this congregation four years ago I had what I I think with hindsight was a God-given moment of clarity. I came to a church that that I understood and everybody understood needed to grow. Uh, the demographics just told you that. If people didn't join, if, if babies weren't born into the congregation, our, our future would have been pretty short term. So in, in our early days, I was very conscious of our need to grow. But then I distinctly remember a point where I sensed God challenging my thinking, don't worry about growth, Christoph. Go for health. Don't worry about growth. It's health that you're about. You, you teach God's word. You try and lead in a way that will make a healthy, godly congregation. And that congregation will, will grow in the measure that all healthy living things do. It might not grow in the way and on the scale that you expect or want it to, but it will grow in right measure, it'll grow as I want it to. And I remember just having that thought, whether, whether God gave it to me or, or just allowed it to be a truth that came to me. It changed my view of everything. I thought, well, that's it. No more worry about growth. Certainly no doing anything to pursue growth. It's health. What can we do to become a healthy, godly Congregation. Folks, I, I hope that we are becoming, as we hear God's word together, as we try to live it out, becoming a healthy community of God's people. And, and if we grow, so be it, under God, we are content to be who He makes us. By the time we come to these opening verses of chapter two, while Paul had been talking to leaders in chapter one. Now he's talking about a whole congregation. Regarding the men, Paul tells Titus, teach the older men to be temperate, worthy of respect, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in endurance. Now, if you looked at those characteristics, they're actually the same as Paul gives elsewhere as a list of criteria for eldership. And in some ways we shouldn't be surprised by that overlap because in those days it would have been elder men exclusively who would have been elders in a congregation. I don't want to go through these one by one this morning. I think that would kill it a bit for us. I want to pick up one that I think is characteristic and summarizes the others. Older men were told should be worthy of respect. Now time and time again in the Bible young people and children are told to respect older people. And I want to stand here this morning and endorse that wholeheartedly. I wonder if that's something we maybe need to to keep before us in our culture. Has our respect for, for our elders and for age diminished? Certainly a question worth asking. So that's something that the Bible often talks about, the need for younger people to respect elders. But that's not what's going on here this is the opposite side of the coin it's speaking to older men and says be worthy of respect and i think there's a a wonderful moment of experiential truth here because the truth is you can't really ultimately respect a person unless they're worthy of it no matter how many times you're told or cajoled you know you must res- ultimately respect is a thing that's drawn by a person who's worthy of respect paul says titus teach these older men to be worthy of respect then paul turns his attention to the mature women in the congregation titus teach the older women to be reverent in the way they live they mustn't be slanderers or addicted to much wine i think drink must have been a problem a common problem in crete because titus warns both men and women about drink rightly or wrongly women have a reputation for gossip he mentions slandering here i see a few people smiling in my experience as a man i think men are prone to this too I, I'm not sure that men are above a bit of slander, a bit of wrongly placed chat here and there. Titus is to warn the older women against these vices. And again, if I could offer you one characteristic by way of a summary, look at the first one. They're to be reverent in the way that they live. The word translated here actually means holy. Holy. And it probably has a more specific meaning here. It means like a priestess. Now, I think that makes sense of something that we learned a few weeks ago in one of our summer services. Do you remember we were in Psalm 133? And we were told there that God's people are to be priests to one another. We're to, to bring one another to God. We're to allow a sense of God's presence to permeate our lives so that we can bless others. Well, I think that's what's going on here. Older women are are to radiate the life of Christ. They're to to model it for the younger women. They're to, to be priestesses leading these younger women in holiness. Titus, turn now to the younger women. They're to love their husbands and children. They're to be self-controlled and pure. They're to be busy at home and to be subject to their husbands. Now, got to be careful here. It's one of those sexist moments in the Bible. Please understand that the Bible was written with real lives in mind. But it was written 2,000 years ago in different contexts than the ones in which we live in today. In that culture into which Paul's writing, it would have been taken for granted that women would marry at a very young age. It would be also taken for granted that their occupation would be entirely domestic. We need to think for a moment about how this teaching might translate for younger women in our culture today. Married or not, I think we can all pick up on the general gist of what Paul is saying. Young women are to be self-controlled, Pure and kind. Notice how Paul's pastoral experience shines through here. Titus, you're a man, so it's okay for you to teach older men, older women, and younger men, but steer clear of the young women. You're a young man. If you are to minister with integrity, if you're to be safeguarded against uh, the dangers that can come with inappropriate interaction and, and levels of intimacy, stare clear of the younger women. Leave that for the older women to look after. And then what about the younger men? Titus is to encourage young men to be self-controlled. It seems to me that each phase of life brings its own temptations. I don't know if I'm qualified anymore to speak of the temptations of youth. I'll, I'll work on, when, with my memory here rather than, than anything up to date. Youth's a wonderful time. It's the time when we're strong and we're, when we're vigorous and we're full of vision. And that can be a wonderful time in the service of God. But it's also a time when we know tremendous passions and temptations. If you were here last Sunday evening, you'll know that we, we thought for a while about, about how that worked itself out in the life of, of Joseph. When I have visited with senior members time and time again, I've heard them say, I wouldn't want to be a young person in the world today. Well, it seems to me that there were dangers for young people in Paul's day too. Titus is to urge younger men to be self-controlled. By the way, if you think self-control doesn't sound very appealing, we live in a culture where you do what you want, when you want, how you want. Here it is. The challenge in God's word is to be self-controlled. You'll find it here. You'll find it many other times in the New Testament. There is no other faithful life for the follower of Jesus Christ than a life of self-control. Paul wisely doesn't let Titus himself off the hook. Being a pastor to God's people, it turns out, isn't just about telling people what to do. It's about showing them how to live. In everything, set them an example by doing what is good. In your teaching, show them integrity, seriousness, and soundness of speech that cannot be condemned. A Christian leader or a pastor is always... Whether they would like it or not, they're always a model. Nowadays, we speak of a role model. People will and should always look to their Christian leaders for a lead in how to live. That's how it should be, and and that's just a reality. We all need people to look up to and models to follow. So Paul understands this well. Paul, in his own ministry, said some incredible things. and, And I've been very struck by them as I've read them in recent years. Paul says things like this, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. Isn't that brilliant? Can you imagine standing before a crowd of people and saying, live the way I live? I don't think he means he's perfect, but I think he knows that he's he's living out the life of Christ and that if others took his lead, they'd do well. Elsewhere he says to... I urge you to imitate me. We're almost finished here. Whenever I introduced this letter a couple of weeks ago, I pointed you to the main theme of the letter. And you might remember we we looked at something that just kept coming up and coming up and coming up. Eight times in this short letter, Paul urges the believers in Crete to be active in good deeds. And we asked ourselves a couple of weeks ago, why does he make such a big deal of good deeds? Uh, We know that we're not saved by by our deeds, so so why good deeds? That question becomes a valid one. And in this passage, we find the answer. Look again at chapter 2, verse 5. Older women are to teach younger women to live godly lives so that no one will malign the word of God. Look at chapter 2, verse 8. Titus himself to be a good model of good deeds so that those who oppose you may be ashamed because they've nothing bad to say about you. Friends, we have seen a picture in these verses of people in the church living good lives. And as our congregation more and more begins to model this kind of life, then we make it harder and harder almost impossible for people outside of our congregation or on its fringe to have a bad word to say about the gospel and about jesus christ when we live together in unity like this when we display genuine signs of god's presence and the change that he's making in our lives people are no longer put off but instead are attracted christ why be good so that the people around us can see the reality of god and turn to him earlier i gave you a a fictional pastoral visit as we close i want you to come with me on another one we're in a different street but we're again we're calling with a woman in the twilight years of her life And this time we get a wonderful, wonderful warm welcome. Despite her cataracts and her varicose veins, this lady's clearly full of joy. Uh, She's just delighted to see us. She's beaming. And when we ask her how she finds such joy in her life, despite her, her physical limitations and her aches and her pains, her face lights up. And she says it's very simple. I know Jesus. God blessed me with a wonderful family. I have so much to be grateful for. So we ask her to tell us about that, and and she tells us more. She says, I came to know Jesus as a young woman. It was through my youth group in church. It was through the godly example and teaching of a, a, a teacher there, Mrs. X, one of the leaders, she was like a mother to me she prayed for me all her life long until she passed away some years ago and my elder at church mr y he was a real gem he was a truly godly man a man i really expected so loving and so patient i was blessed with a good minister Year in, year out, month in, month out, week in, week out, he preached God's word and he practiced what he preached. You see what I mean? With people like that around me, I have so much to be grateful for. I was blessed with a good family. Friends, both of those visits I've described to you this morning are are fictional but take me at my word that they're both entirely realistic. It's it's astonishing the difference that we can make in people's lives simply by how we live out the life of Christ in our church. The reality is that some people are put off, irreparably put off, church and the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because of their experiences here. But let me encourage you by the wonderful reality that many others are drawn to Christ. And if you ask them, what brings you here? What, what was it that, that led you to know Christ for yourself? They'll tell you. It was my my mom, it was my Sunday school teacher, it was my friend. God gives each one of us a wonderful dignity. That by our lives, we can play our part in drawing people into the kingdom. Let us pray. Father God, as we think on these things this morning, as we've heard your word, Lord, take away from us any sense that we would ever be casual about being part of your family, the church. Show us again the wonderful privilege, the huge responsibility that is ours as we take the name of Jesus Christ. Guard us from anything in our lives that would put people off. Make us instead those who who shine, with our good lives, with our our warm hearts, with our open arms. And that we make the gospel a thing of glory for the people who look on and watch us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Lord, give us your spirit to help us in this. We pray. Amen. We learned a new song last week, and we'll sing it as our closing hymn this morning. It's a wonderful prayer, asking God to restore the honor of his name in, in our nation, in the place where we live. And that's, that's what this is all about. We look forward to a time when God is, is loved and honored by all. Uh, let's stand as we sing number 224, Sorry, 624. Restore, O Lord. <laughs>